And would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, as we gather together in this place, and Lord, as we lift our hearts in worship, we do so, Lord, desiring to see our world now through your eyes. Lord, we walk through this world with human eyes and, Lord, are only uh, dimly aware of the conflicts that surround us. And yet, Lord, through your eyes, uh, yours are the, is the vision of victory. You, you, have, you have overcome all things, and, Lord, looking back in our time, you do so through the, the, the power and the wonder and the glory of grace. Lord, help us to see our lives Help us to see our world through those eyes of victory so that, Lord, we might be able to trust you with ourselves wholly, completely, without anything reserved, but, Lord, in full surrender, we give ourselves to you. In obedience to your claim in our lives, through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. There was a blockbuster movie in the uh, 1970s that... It's one of my favorite, and some of you may remember, it's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. It's the story of two very likable uh, cowboys who actually were outlaws, and they made a career of robbing banks and trains. And that's not the goal of the lesson, but uh, that's how the movie unfolded. And they were pretty good at it. In fact, they were so good that a special posse in the movie was formed uh, to, to track them down. And, and in one of the very best chase scenes in film history, the two of them find themselves being hunted across the frontier by a nameless and a faceless lawman. They did everything they could to shake the posse. They, they split up with their partners. Uh, they ran their horses through rivers. But every time they looked back behind them, they could see off in the distance that the lawman was in, in pursuit. Uh, and finally, they took their horses up into the rocky hills where there was no trail so that they wouldn't leave any footprints. And, and when they finally arrived at the summit of this rocky mountain, they looked back, but there he was relentlessly following their unseen path. And in pure frustration, Butch turns to Sundance with one of the greatest lines in film, and he says, Who are these guys? I can't do that. Can you do that? How can they do that? I just love the swing of questions that come. It's my belief that at some point in time, every single one of us has asked that very same question as we have looked over our shoulder toward heaven. In almost three months, we are going to be celebrating Easter, and for over 2,000 years, men and women have had to encounter Jesus as the risen Lord, the one who came out of the tomb, the one who ascended into heaven, and is the one who now sits at the right hand of God. It's a moment of awe, and it will be a question that rises up in every human heart. Who is this guy? I can't do that. Can you do that? How can he do that? Who is this? And even more... Why is he coming after me? You may remember that as we began our study in the Gospel of Luke several weeks ago, uh, I presented the one verse that really defines the full purpose of the entire Gospel of Luke. It, It outlines the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, you will find this verse. It says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That verse serves as an outline for the entire gospel, the entire shape of the gospel. For the first few chapters present the coming of Jesus Christ, the Christmas story. 
And then the, the, the last few chapters of the Gospel present the act of salvation which is played out on the cross and from the grave where He then saves the lost. But as we open up our study and have been looking in the Gospel of Luke, we find ourselves in the middle of the Gospel and there what we find is a seeking Jesus. Jesus who is on the hunt. Now let me tell you this morning, He is on your trail. And you cannot shake Him loose. It was with poetic power that Frank Thompson wrote the wonderful, uh, 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 he, he wrote of Jesus in his wonderful poem called The Hound of Heaven. And his words catch that sense of relentless and expert pursuit by this Jesus, the Christ. He says these words, he said, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I I fled him down the arches of the years. I, I fled him down the labyrinthian ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter, up vested hopes I sped, up shot and precipitated and then down titanic glooms of chasm fears from those strong feet that followed and followed after with unhurried chase and unperturbed pace they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee, you who betrayest me. Jesus Christ is the hound, and you cannot hide from him. Jesus seeks the lost, and he is looking for you. That is the heart of the gospel. And that is what we see this morning as we open up to Luke chapter 11, and we begin at verse 14. I'd invite you to turn your Bibles open to that passage once again. And look at the action as it unfolds. What we find at the very beginning in Luke chapter 11, verse 14, is that Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. And when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowd was amazed. Now let me just pause at that particular moment. On your sermon outline, I have it here that that this is an action that commands our attention. As I was reading this, I had to ask myself the question, how was this healing arranged? How was the appointment made with this divine doctor? Uh, There's no record here that anyone asked Jesus to help this man. And it's utterly obvious that this man was unable to ask for help himself. Because what? He was mute. He was silent. He was unable to, to utter a sound. But Jesus knew. And so Jesus came. And then Jesus healed. Why? Because that was his mission. Jesus came to seek the lost and do so with the power of God. And with that power, he is able to see deep in the heart. He doesn't need (coughs) words to know where you are. And with the vision of heaven, he knows the forces against which you struggle so that he then simply takes the initiative to reach out to you. Here that initiative begins with a healing. And it's a healing of a very special sort. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked here with, with, with the, uh, the kind of divine details, but it was obvious that when he was healing this man, he was dealing with a demonic presence, a demon. <clears throat> Let there be no doubt. <clears throat> Within our world, there is a personality to, to, to evil. There are demons, and there is a devil. Paul writes that our battles are not 
just a matter of flesh and blood. He writes, he says, but they are with the powers and the principalities. The devil is real. Have no doubt about that. And his agents are active. Have no doubt about that as well. But what I want you to see here is that Jesus is greater still than all of those powers and principalities. So that when he speaks and says, go, they skadoodle. He drives them away, and they run. Now, you may feel intimidated by forces beyond your control. You may find yourself somehow trapped by evil, a captive to sin, but Jesus has the power to set you free. And we read it in the Gospel, in the Gospel of John. If the Son has set you free, you are what? Free indeed. Free indeed. Jesus reaches out here to the mute. And he frees him. And this man who was once silent, it's funny. Now he can't stop talking. Talking about the freedom that he has received. But even more, in this moment, Jesus has extended his reach into the heart and the mind and the imagination of the collective consciousness of the entire crowd that has been following him. And with that, then, they begin to ask the question, who is this guy? I can't do that. Can you do that? How can he do that? That's the question in the heart of the crowd. (coughs) Well, they don't know it. But the fact is, he has just flushed them out in his hunt to save them as well. And so their salvation depends on their ability to find the answer to their heartfelt questions. Who is this, this Jesus? Now, obviously, it was a time for them to decide. One of those moments where thinking comes to a critical mass and they had to give an answer. And so a few voices begin to shatter the silence of their amazement. In verse 15 and 16, we see those voices begin to arise. Some of them said, Well, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. You see that there. Now, I want you to note there's a real contrast to, the, to, to, to these words in 15 and 16 to what we find at the end of 14. In 14, we read that the people, having seen the miracle, were amazed. Or, or some of you may have it translated in your Bibles as, they began to marvel. In essence, their conclusions about Christ were beginning to shake shape and form. And they were beginning to look at him with this feeling of awe. <coughs> that is the dawning attitude of respect. That leads a person to surrender, that, that sense of awe, and, and ultimately in surrender to worship. And the fact is, some of you may be at that stage yourself right now. Maybe you've attended a Bible study, maybe you've gone to a youth group, maybe you've gone to, uh, to a friend's house, maybe you've gone to an alpha program or some such thing. And in the process of having gone, this person called Jesus is becoming a a little more clear to you. And as this Jesus is becoming clear to you, you find that your heart is growing warm. And that is wonderful. That's awe. (coughs) But on the other side of that great divide, there is also an attitude of defiance. Where even though the heart is growing warm, you also sense that the heart is growing harder as well because it is beginning to congeal into hostility. Here you have a sense of scene of healing which is surrounded by praise and gratitude, but it is suddenly 
shattered with razor-sharp attitude. Well, he's not of God. Why, he might, in fact, be of the devil. (coughs) Excuse me for just a second. Thank you, whoever brought the glass for me. And thank you for not putting goldfish in there, too. I've had that happen to me before. One commentator has written this of Jesus. Jesus stepped into the cesspool of the demonic world in order to rescue the man, while from a safe distance, his enemies had the gall to accuse him of coming from that very same sewer. Show us a sign from heaven, they grumbled. Don't show us a sign from the pit. For them, this statement was almost like a guilt-by-association argument, an argument that revealed their attitude, but it also provided Jesus an opportunity to reveal the truth about himself. And his first words may sound technical, but but listen to what he says, and I shall explain. In Luke chapter 11, verses 17 through 20, it says something wonderful about Jesus when it says, Jesus knew their thoughts. He knows the thoughts of humanity. And he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And a house divided against itself will fall. And if Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. <laughs> now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons, and notice this, by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. On your sermon outline, I have it that Jesus was totally certain of his identity. He knew who he was, while others were trying to figure it out. He knew exactly who he was, and he also knew by whose finger he was casting out demons. Historically, it is one of the most remarkable facts that in the years surrounding uh, the life of Christ, there is, in fact, a record of very distinct demon activity in the Middle East. (coughs) It was almost as if Satan, having sensed the coming of Christ, had employed all of his agents and sent them out to help for him. It was a remarkable moment historically. And history records this rise, and as Jewish history records it, there were some exorcists in, in, in the Middle East who were successful in chasing out demons. <clears throat> the New Testament scholar Norval Geldenheis writes, he says that the general idea among the Jews at that time was that when a rabbi or another Jew delivered anyone from the possession of the devil, it was a sign that God was at work through him. So these, these accusers knew better. And so Jesus called them out by using the same logic that they had already bought into. Satan doesn't fight against himself. And if you're going to make an exception in your thinking about me, what about your people? What about your friends? What about your rabbis? What about your exorcists? Hmm? Are you suggesting that maybe they are in league with the devil as well? Obviously not. And that question becomes an embarrassing thought for them, but even more, Jesus, with that question, sets the record straight. If he isn't of Satan, there is only one alternative left. And that is, he must be 
of God. And if he casts out demons by the finger of God, then God's kingdom has come. The Messiah has arrived. What more proof do you need? He was certain of his identity. But even more, he was confident of his authority. Look at verse 21. <clears throat> there he says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. Now this is a parable. And, and, and there are some who debate the identities that are involved in this parable. So let me clarify how that parable is to be understood. The armed man... The strong man is the devil. And for this moment in time, the earth in its state as a fallen creation with sinful humanity, uh, sinful humanity are in his house and of his possession. Don't let anybody fool you into thinking that you are born free and that you choose to either belong to the devil or belong to God from the very beginning. Being born into this world as a sinner, you belong to the devil. Oh, you can choose to belong to God, and when you do, well, then you are what? Born again. But being born at first, you are part of his possession. And from the beginning, you are not your own. The devil has got you under lock and key. That is, until Christ comes. And in verse 21, he is the one who is someone stronger. And when he comes, Satan is done. He is busted up and he is plundered. He's got the power, Jesus does. He's got the power to set you free. And those are the facts, should you care to face them. When in the heart that question is raised, who is this Jesus and who does he think he is? The answer rings strong and clear. He is the Son of God who came to set you free. And when he sets you free, you are what? Free indeed. So the facts stand. And, and then Jesus presses it on. Look at verse 23. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Oh, let that verse sink in. Let it sink in. When it comes to Jesus, you are either for him or against him. There is no middle ground. We cannot negotiate an alliance with him. We can only surrender to him. We, we can't agree to publicly acknowledge him and then expect to privately ignore him. I read this and I realize that Jesus is not interested in making friends and in settling good feelings so that everybody can end the day with a happy smile on their face. All relationships with him mean nothing unless they come from total surrender. I think of that, and sometimes I am humbled at heart. There have been times in my ministry as a pastor where I have found in, 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 in trying to share the gospel with somebody that it is so hard to get someone to commit to Jesus Christ. And, and because it is so hard, I will confess this, I, 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 I am tempted to think that maybe, okay, that being the case, then I'll settle to make a friend out of them for Jesus. And maybe that'll be good enough. Maybe being a friend with Jesus is just good enough. If I can just get the person to think positively about God, 
then I'll settle for that. I mean, I, I, if I can just get people to agree to clean up their lives a little bit and maybe a little, be a little more circumspect in their language and have a little bit of more respect for Jesus, maybe that'll do. Maybe that'll do. <coughs> but with that thought, I have gone into the Scriptures and I have discovered that there are several problems with that. In the New Testament, it says of John the Baptist that when he was in prison and Herod had and imprisoned him, Herod, on the other hand, loved John the Baptist going to talk with him at night. He enjoyed their conversations. There was a friendship that actually had developed while John was in prison. But that did not prevent Herod from chopping his head off. And they go on to the Old Testament. When you read of Moses, there is a passage in the book of Exodus that says that Pharaoh respected Moses more than any other man. There was that respect. There was that affection. But it did not prevent him from sending his army out to kill him. Friendship is not enough when it comes to Jesus Christ. And as he puts the words into play, he says, He who is not with me is against me, and who does not gather with me scatters. Uh, and, and, and I realize that words like this are a wake-up call. It's not enough just to clean up your behavior, to tidy up your life, to, to, to learn how to nod at Jesus as you pass him by, or even pass him up. If he is not the center of your life, the consequences are frightening. And the consequences are there. Look at verse 24. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places, seeking rest, it does not find it. Then it says, I'll go ahead and return to the house I left. It says here, when it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. I might just add to that and say, but if it arrives and finds the house swept clean and in order, the house, you notice, is empty. There's nothing in residence to that house. But then let me go on. Then that, that demon finding the house swept and clean and put in order goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go and they, and they come and they live there and the final condition of the man is worse than the first. Do you realize what Jesus is saying here? A life that is clean but without Christ, resident within, is first and foremost the most attractive target for the devil. And second is utterly helpless against him. A life that is clean but without Christ has no armor, no prayer, no protection, no power, and in the end, a life that is clean but without Christ, it is bound for disaster, a condition, Jesus says, that is worse than the first. So the surrender is not just for affection and likability. It is for residence. It is surrender. And so I have to ask the question, are you his? Are you with him? If not, you're against him. Is he at the center of your life? Or are you still in a stage of negotiations, seeking better terms, something a little bit less than surrender? It's time for you to decide. He's already revealed himself. You know who he is. And the hound of heaven has finally arrived. And the Son of God, he came to seek you, to save you.
And the question is, will you surrender to his rescue? One of the things that you discover over time is that people in need of rescue don't always accept rescue. In fact, sometimes they resist it and reject it because they find it hard to surrender to the team that has come. <laughs> I was reading this this week, uh, 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 the study out of, uh, of, 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 that was put together by a psychiatrist, Dr. Stephen Gross. And, and, and his research is fascinating. He points to research that shows that, that we usually don't respond when a fire alarm rings. Instead of, of leaving a building immediately, oftentimes we will stand around and wait for more clues. But even then, with more information, we still won't make a move. And sometimes that ends up proving deadly for people. <coughs> I guess we're in the reason why this story really came to heart is that I was lecturing this last week and last Thursday at the seminary, and I no sooner opened my mouth than the fire alarm went off in the building. And I all of a sudden realized what he said was absolutely true. I didn't want to leave. I was ready to start my lecture. I was a little put out that the students got up and walked out. And uh, finally, I had to walk out too. But he said, he goes, uh, most people won't make a move, and sometimes it proves deadly. And then he goes on to give an illustration. He said, for instance, in 1985, 56 people were killed when a fire broke out in the stands of a soccer match in England. Close examination of television footage later showed that the fans did not react immediately and continued to watch both the fire and the game and failed to move toward the exits. He goes on to say that research, his research has shown that when we do move, we follow old habits. We don't trust emergency exits. We almost always try to exit a room through the same door we entered. After a fire at the Beverly Hills Supper Club in Kentucky left 177 people dead, forensic experts confirmed that many of the victims sought to pay before leaving and so died in the queue. Finding excuses to escape rescue. And then he concludes in his research, he said, after 25 years as a psychoanalyst, he said, I can't say that this surprises me because most people resist change. Committing ourselves to a small change, even one that is unmistakably in our best interest, is often more frightening than ignoring a dangerous situation. We don't want an exit if we don't know exactly where it is going to take us, even or especially in an emergency. We want to know the new story that we're stepping into before we exit the old one. Let me tell you, in opening the gospel, we are showing you the new story. Jesus loves you. He came to save you. It's time for you to surrender to him. Don't resist the rescue. Don't resist the rescue. You know the story, and the question then remains, will you surrender? The line has been drawn by Jesus himself, and it couldn't be any more clear. He who is, is not with me is against me. But even then, he says, he who is mine, <laughs> I am with him forever, even into the end of the age. So I come to the end of the sermon here, and really it is in your hands. It's a decision only you can make. It's a decision only you can reinforce. 
to say, I give up my negotiations and I simply bow in surrender. And I say those words, Jesus, you are my Lord. Heal me. Strengthen me. Cleanse me. Protect me. Come into my heart. And Lord, as you come in, fill me with your spirit. And with this, I give you thanks and I give you praise. In the glorious and wonderful name of the one who loved me, Jesus Christ, who is my Lord. And in his name I pray. Amen.